How many of you guys are familiar with the character of Saul in the Old Testament? Can I see your hands? Right, kind of a pretty known, well-known character. He was the first king of Israel. He was a fine specimen of a man from the tribe of Benjamin, well-to-do family. Many of you probably know of his love-hate relationship with David, the king. But how many of you know the character of David, the king? Everybody, right? I mean, he's so well-known. He was one of the major characters in the Old Testament. And his name appears more than 1,000 times across the span of the Old and New Testament. It's three times more than Abraham, more than Moses, even more than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Of course, Jesus is sometimes called the son of David. And if you look at it another way and see how many chapters in the scripture are devoted to David, there's 14 chapters devoted to Abraham. There's 14 devoted to Joseph. But listen to this, there's 66 chapters in the Bible that deal with the life of David, there's 59 references to him, to his life in the New Testament. So we're dealing with one major character of the Old Testament this morning. We're dealing with another character that you probably know, Saul. And you probably know some of their big successes, just like you probably are aware of some of their big failures. So we're going to talk this morning about the rejection of Saul as the king and then the anointing of David. But there's a whole lot more to learn from their lives than just their big successes and their failures. And in fact, some of the things that you may think you know, you may not know. That's true of kids and adults, isn't it? I love when kids are asked questions about the Bible. They respond just so innocently and candidly and confidently. They asked one kid about Noah's wife, and he said, oh yeah, I know her. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. I got a bigger laugh at 9.30. I mean, that's not quite it, is it? Another kid was asked about Lot's wife. He said, yep. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> Another kid was asked about marriage in the Bible. And he said, yep, a Christian should have only one spouse, and that's called monotony. He didn't, get, he didn't get it quite right, did he? So you see, we may learn some things about Saul and David besides their obvious successes and failures. Our main text today will be found in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. We'll be in the 16th chapter. I invite you to turn there with me. We'll be going to other places, but this will be our main text. We'll begin at verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. It says, the Lord, and I want you to notice that the Lord is all in caps. And I'll speak about that more in a moment. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. 
I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So the Lord being in caps, it's called a tetragrammaton. It's the holiest name of God in the Old Testament. The personal name of God in the Old Testament. Y-W-H. Excuse me, Y-H-W-H. No vowels. Yahweh. That's how it's said in Hebrew. It's his most intimate personal name. He's revealing himself on a personal level to Samuel and a holy level. And even though Saul, this first king, has been rejected as king, he had a great beginning. Let me introduce you to Saul just a bit. These verses will be on your screen. We look at 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1a. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul. And listen to this description of Saul. A handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward... He was taller than any of the people. In other words, Saul was impressive physically. He was tall. In our modern parlance, we would say he was tall, dark, and handsome. He was filled with physical vigor. Physical vigor. He just looked like a king. And then whenever Samuel had gone to anoint him, you'll see this in verse 21 of chapter 9, Saul answers this when Samuel's anointing him. He says, am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is it not my clan, the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Saul's saying to Samuel, why would you choose me? I mean, I may be tall, dark, and handsome, but I'm from the least. Why would the Lord choose me to be king? And I want you to notice this this morning. There's humility in Saul at the outset. There's this physical prowess, but there's also appropriate humility. And Samuel promises Saul that God will be with him and that the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon him. Look at verse 9 of chapter 10. And he turned, he saw, turned his back to leave Samuel, and God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. God literally changed Saul's heart. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of a great beginning. And here's the first principle, the first lesson that we can learn this morning from the life of Saul. If you're a note taker, it's in your notes. A great start does not guarantee a great finish. Because what happened? Well, if we had time today, we would look back and see a pattern that develops in Saul. Though he was physically impressive and spiritually humble, and anointed by the Spirit, the Lord was with him. He becomes king. 
And as the years roll by, disobedience crept in. Some impatience with the timing of the Lord. Some presumption about what his prerogatives ought to be. And that pattern of disobedience eventually led to his disgrace. It led to his downfall. It led to his rejection as the king. 1 Samuel 15, 10 gives us some words that are tragic words about anybody. Here's what the word of the Lord says. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and the Lord said to Samuel, I regret. Other translations say grieved. The Lord says, I regret, I'm grieved that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. You see, beloved, this morning, the downfall of Saul after a great beginning was disobedience. Disobedience to the Lord. So how does his life end? When you get to the very end of Saul's story, in a battle that was going bad with the Philistines, Saul takes his own sword and fell on it and committed suicide. So there's a cautionary lesson for us right at the very beginning, and that's a great start doesn't guarantee a great finish. What happens when you're in the marketplace? You have a business, you have a good job, you get a good start, you get a good break, you've got a good product, you have good marketing, you have a good plan, you've got appropriate financing. The wind is in your sails, everything is going right, and everybody knows that you're a person of integrity and character. Well, when we switch to marriage, you meet a man or woman and you, you think, I could not love a human being any more than this. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with this person. And your covenant marriage begins and you're exploring what God's doing. You can't wait to see, learn new things about your spouse for God to reveal his plans. But along the way, you invite someone into the emotional space that's reserved for only you and your wife or husband or in your business. Somewhere along the way, you begin to cut the corner. You begin to do the deal in a way you've never done before. You compromise your values. And pretty soon, the disobedient pattern sets in and God removes his hand of blessing. And a great start doesn't lead to a great finish. There's a word of caution here, beloved, and that may be for you and I this morning that says, walk in obedience to the command of the Lord. Walk in obedience. Finish strong. The Apostle Paul says it this way. This is a recurring theme in his ministry. We find it in the Acts narrative frequently. 
He says, I want to finish strong. In fact, he was meeting with the elders of Ephesus, and he says these words. He says, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Why? If only I might finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Finishing your course is an athletic term. It means like a sprinter who's running a race. You are any kind of race. You want to be leaning at the tape. I cannot run my three-year-old grandchildren. But beloved, I want to be found running towards the tape, finishing strong. I have a course. You have a course. Something that's uniquely individual to you. But that's just one of the things Paul says, that he wants to finish your course, his course strong. He says, and the ministry that's been entrusted to me to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You don't have to go to evangelism explosion to know that your purpose is to testify to God's grace. Beloved, finish strong. Walk in obedience to the command of the Lord. Let's pick up in chapter 16, verse two. Samuel says, well, how can I go to anoint David? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. That would be truth, just not all the truth. <laughs> Verse 3, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Just like Samuel anointed Saul, God was sending him to anoint a new king who would be David. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded, came to Bethlehem. Bethlehem's a small town just a few miles south of Jerusalem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. I don't want you to miss what's getting ready to happen here in verse 6. And so when they came, Samuel looked at Eliab. Now that was the oldest son of Jesse and thought, well, surely this is the one. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, as Samuel looks upon this oldest son, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Eliab must have been a tall guy, like Saul. The Lord says, don't look at that. Because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. The Lord doesn't see things the way I do and you do. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. So this passage is teaching us that it's what's inside that matters most. It's what's inside. It's in our heart and in our spirit and in our soul and in our character 
and in our interior being, those are the things that matter most. It's not to say that the other things don't matter some. It's just to say that's not where our focus should be. Our focus ought to be on what's inside. 32 years ago, Stephen Covey published The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book influenced a whole generation and continues to exert influence today. In fact, I find in it great practical wisdom. It recommends a whole host of habits that will improve effectiveness as a person. But probably the seminal insight of the book was in the first few pages. When Covey says that he studied the success literature from our country from its formation, 1776, until now. In other words, he began to, clear, to study in detail what people in our country had written about success, how to find success, how to be successful. And he said, do you know what I found? He said that I found that in the first 150 years, the approach was what might be called the character ethic as the foundation of success. He says, I found things like integrity, humility, fidelity, temperance, courage, justice, patience, industry, simplicity, modesty, and the golden rule were things that were taught. They were valued, they were illustrated, they were amplified, they were applied as foundational to success. And this ethic for 150 years in this country taught the basic principles of effective living and that people could only experience true success and enduring happiness as they took those er character ethic qualities and integrated those principles into their lives. But then Covey says, right after World War I, there was a shift. Something happened in the success literature, it changed. It became what he calls the personality ethic. He says it began to emphasize more success as a function of personality, of public image, of attitudes, of behaviors, of skills, of orchestration, of techniques that lubricate the process of human interaction. It focused on quick fix influence, power strategies, how we communicate, positive attitudes. It's reflected in certain axioms like this, your attitude determines your altitude. Smiling wins more friends than frowning. Whatever the mind of man can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Now Covey goes on to say, and I would too, and, and beloved, I don't want you to miss this. I, I want you to hear this today. I'm not suggesting that some of those things some of those elements of the personality ethic are not important. The Bible's in favor of learning. The Bible's in favor of growth. The Bible is in favor of good skills. But the point here is, all of those personality ethic traits are secondary. They're not primary. It's what's on the inside that matters most in our character, 
and in our soul. I want you to look at your notes, your fill-in-the-blank notes, and there's, if you look at the, near the bottom of the page, it says it's what's inside that matters, and there's these things in three columns. If you'll draw a line under the word reality in the second column, I want to take a moment and compare, starting with the first column, to the first word that's after reality. So for example, substance ought to matter more than style. Character ought to matter more than charisma. Spiritual beauty should matter more than physical beauty. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Surrendered heart should matter more than superior intelligence. Integrity should matter more than image. Reality should matter more than appearance. And guess what? These contemporary writers are simply saying what Jesus said to the Pharisees who were all about their image. Look at Jesus' words. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful. Do we have that screen? I want you to look at these words. For you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so church, hear the big lesson today. Oh, listen. Learn to present well. Learn to dress well. Educate yourself on relationships, how they occur. But know beyond all of the personality ethic traits, it's what's inside you that matters the most. So Jesse, one by one, parades seven of his sons before Samuel. And with each one, Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen this one. He's rejected this one. And so here's the lesson. God is sovereign in his choice of those he uses. And God's ways are inscrutable sometimes. We don't know why the Lord didn't choose any of those other sons, but he didn't. And every time I think along these lines of God's sovereignty and how he chooses things, my mind runs to the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. And Paul is writing about God's choice of us in Christ. Aren't we glad, those of us that follow him, that he chose us? He wrote this. He said, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. Why? 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because, and listen to this, beloved, listen to this, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. From soup to nuts, from the beginning of your walk with Christ till the end of your life when we will be in glory with him. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the people that God chooses to use are those that will give God all the glory and whom the world may not value. Russell Moore is currently the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. For years, many years, he was on the staff of Southern Seminary. In his blog post in January of 2012, he related a, a conversation he had with Dr. Carl F.H. Henry. Dr. Henry was one of the leading evangelical theologians in the last half of the 20th century. He was the founding editor of Christianity Today. He was a close companion in ministry of Billy Graham. And when Russell Moore was interviewing, Dr. Henry was aged. And so he asked Dr. Henry if he saw any hope in the coming generation of evangelicals. And Russell Moore says, I will never forget his reply. Here's what he said. Here's what Dr. Henry said. He said, why you speak as though Christianity were genetic. <laughs> of course there's hope for the next generation of evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are probably still pagans. <laughs> Dr. Henry goes on to say, who knew? That Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, murderer of Christians, would be struck down on the road to Damascus and become the great apostle to the Gentiles. Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis, an atheistic Oxford Don, to become a major apologist for the Christian faith? Who knew that God would save Richard Nixon in prison? Richard Nixon's hatchet man in prison, Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson would become a great evangelist in the American evangelical scene. These men were unbelievers who once saved by the grace of God became mighty warriors for the faith. Don't you see, church? Don't you see? God delights in choosing what the world would never expect. Like a shepherd boy named David. To become king and progenitor of the Messiah who would come. And beloved, God may be choosing you. You may not be famous. Nobody may know your name. You may be young. 
You may be old. You may have all kinds of faults and flaws. But God may be saying this morning, I am going to use you. I'm choosing you. I love the way Russell Moore concludes his thought about that. He says, who knows? The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. Who knows? The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house this morning. Who knows? The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. You see, church, God is sovereign in choosing who he uses. Aren't you glad he chooses weak folks like you and me? So let's pick up the story in verse 11, chapter 16. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Boy, there's a lot in that sense. I was talking to some of our members between services. I, I, this is Michael Hall commentary, but I just don't think Jesse thought much of this, of this little run, of this little one. He said, yeah, I've got one. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. And how about this? For we will not sit down until he comes here. Boy, I sure hope he was close. <laughs> We're not going to sit down until this one comes. Verse 12, he sent, brought him, David, in. Now he was ruddy. This could mean dark-complected. It could mean red-haired, red-headed. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now I want, I want you to watch this. Outward appearance is not primary, but even Scripture gives it some attention. It's secondary, but Scripture gives attention. And see, he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So there's a principle here that I want us to spend our last minutes together. And it's this. Those God plans to use to accomplish his larger purposes, he trains. He trains. What's been going on with David in his young life is he's been out there tending the sheep, and it's been a period of training. And I want to show you how often God uses this and does it. Now, I'm not saying he does it this way every single time, but often he does it this way. He trains us in solitude, first of all, by ourselves. Nobody else around. And can I just say to you this morning that if you can't stand to be by yourself, that might reveal an inner character flaw you need to deal with before God will use you in a significant way. You have to be able to live with the silence of your own soul for God to use you. And that may be where you are today in your training. You may be in solitude. The next way he trains us is in obscurity. Almost always God takes leaders he uses to the backside of the desert where nobody will ever hear or know about them before he puts them into the spotlight. I think about Joseph, whose brother sold him into slavery. And he's in prison in Egypt in, in obscurity and solitude. 
And then one, in a period of 24 hours, God elevates him to be the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. But God was training him in obscurity. Maybe that's where you are today. The third way is through the monotony of rather insignificant, repetitive tasks. You might be saying right now in your job, what they've got me doing just seems meaningless. I just do these same insignificant tasks day after day, again and again. But look what Chuck Swindoll says about that. He says, if you wanna be a person with a large vision, you must cultivate the habit of doing the little things well and don't miss this. That's when God puts iron in your bones. The fourth way he trains us is through the reality of challenges that develop our character and our competence. David, while he's out tending his father's sheep in the backside of nowhere, there was one occasion where a lion came and took a lamb and God gave him the power to defeat the lion, to kill the lion, to save the lamb. Another occasion, a bear came. Same thing happened. And David used that example when he stood before Goliath, who was defying the armies of the living God, this uncircumcised giant. And David looks at him and said, God was with me out in the wilderness when no one was around, training me in obscurity and solitude and in challenges. And who are you to defy the armies of the living God? Today, God's going to deliver you into my hands. And the last way he trains us is over time. I love what Alan Redpath, the evangelist and former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, says about that. He says, the conversion of the soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you today for your timeless, God-breathed, unchanging word. For the power that's contained in your word. Lord, I believe today that you're calling people to yourself. You're choosing those that the world may not value. But because of your sovereignty, because of your plans and purposes, because of the perfect way that you orchestrate our lives, the, the plan of obedience if we will follow. Lord, I pray that every man and woman in here today will obey your call. There may be those of here that don't know you. Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. There may be those that have this prompting, this wooing, this this calling from the Holy Spirit. And Lord, may they be obedient and obey that call. I pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.